0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series Holy Waiting. In the book of 1 Thessalonians, Paul encourages Christians in the midst of an ungodly culture to live in holiness as they eagerly await the return of Jesus. As we're beginning this morning, our our text is going to be 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2 beginning at verse 17 and we're going to go through chapter 3 verse 10. It's all one section. You'll see how it hangs together. But uh, I want to encourage you as well, Uh, this past week on After Hours, our little video we shoot each week, uh, I talked for just six minutes about how to prepare to receive God's Word based on the text we looked at last week in uh, Thessalonians. I was asking, and Stephanie thought that was a good idea, and I said, well, it will be. So we just sat down and and kind of came up with a thing together on how to hear and receive God's Word, and I'd encourage you to do it. It's just a way that actually starts even prior to you getting here on Sunday morning. And so uh, we want to we hear and take all we can out of God's Word. So this week, again, we're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning at verse 17 and going all the way through chapter 3, verse 10. I'll be using the English Standard Version. You've got it right there in front of you on the little uh, uh, card you got when you came in, and you can follow along in your Bible as well. Hear now the word of the reigning king. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Uh, D2, if you can put up the picture here. This is a picture from last summer, actually. My wife and I were in Southern California, and one... One of the things that we were doing there is the two really old guys in the picture, not not the young guy, me, but the other two old guys, they are some friends of mine that were actually midshipmen. Some of you may remember the one on the far right was a guy named Eddie Harris. He was a plebe from class 86. Hard to believe, isn't it, Mary? He's aged. And the guy on the left is Lewis Powell, who is my roommate at the Naval Academy. Now, the reason I I put them up there is it was great for us to go see them. Uh, Lewis and I were rooming together, and one night he actually asked me, I was playing a song for him, I Wish You Jesus, and all excited that I was going to learn to play it on a guitar, and rolled over to go to sleep, and he used to call me Bert, and he said, hey Bert, can we talk for a minute? And I said, sure Lou, what is it? And he said, I-, I want to hear more about this Jesus stuff. I said, sure. So stayed up until like one or two in the morning, talking to him about the gospel. He said, I need to think about it. The next morning I woke up, he said he'd hardly slept, but he said... I want to be a follower of Christ. I want to be a disciple. I want what you're talking about. And Lou had become a believer. A couple of years later, Eddie came in. He was class of 86. We had nine folks from class of 86 at our church back then. And he was a young guy from Texas, big and bold and brash. But I was involved in helping disciple him and getting him to grow. And also Louis, because he was a brand new believer. Well, why I put this picture up is when we were there last year, that morning we went into their church, St. Michael's in San Clemente, And Lou led worship all day, and Eddie taught the word of God. And after the teaching, I went down front, and they gave me communion. And I can't express the amount of joy. Decades into this, seeing guys, and that's Lou's wife, Deb, there. I remember, as a matter of fact, Louis and Debbie were engaged already, and she had moved out here to go to college. And he came to me one day and said, I think i got to break off my engagement with Deb. I don't think she's a Christian. And she'd only been here like two weeks. And I said, whoa, let's give God a chance to work. And it was only like two weeks later, Deb came to the faith. Lou and Deb now have eight daughters who they've raised in the faith. Uh, Eddie and his wife, I think, I can't remember how many kids they've got. They've got four or six or something like that. Seeing them all, being there in worship with them, I can't describe how much joy it brought. Uh, We ended up going back that whole day. How many is it, Marty? Six Eddie's got six. We had another guy who had 10. I told my wife a couple years ago, we've not kept up our part of the bargain." She said something that was entirely non-edifying, so I won't repeat it. Um, yeah. <laughs> so But it was great. We went and spent an afternoon on the beach with Lewis and Deb, and just hung out and watched the sunset and stayed until late, And it was a really encouraging day for both Linda and I as we fellowship with them, because there's something about seeing friends after decades and saying wow we have gone our ways you live in california we've done all this we hardly get to see each other but jesus has been faithful to both of us and i bring that up because paul has a similar joy with the thessalonians they've come to faith and been discipled by him but he's been concerned about their faith and in this passage today we hear what has gone on and so we want to talk about this holy joy that paul is experiencing because of the thessalonians now it it starts with Paul describing a holy desire that he has, and that desire is that he wants to be with the Thessalonians. Our passage starts in in chapter 2, beginning of verses 17 to 20, and Paul's kind of going back. He had just been talking about some of the Jews in Judea who had persecuted Jesus and all the people, but then Paul jumps back and says, I want to remind you what went on in Thessalonica, and he's saying, we didn't just leave you all, We were torn away. Notice in verse uh, 17, he says, We were torn away from you, brothers. We We were ripped out of your midst. And Paul's discussing what happened. You can read about it in Acts chapter 17, verses 1 to 10, where Paul's in Thessalonica, and after a couple of weeks, the people get very jealous, some of the Jewish leaders, and they start a riot in the city. This is where one of the famous verses you've probably heard, if you don't know much else of the story in Acts, This is where the people said, hey, the people who have turned the whole world upside down, they've showed up here now, and they're talking about the Christians, and that's Paul. And so there's all this rioting going on, and if you know much about the Roman Empire, there is one thing that Roman leaders wanted more than anything else, which is they wanted peace and calm and quiet. And anything that stirred up trouble, they weren't happy with. And so, obviously, the leaders there in Thessalonica were like, we, we don't like this because it's stirring up trouble. So they grabbed one of the local Thessalonians who had become a believer, a man named Jason, and they actually put, made him take out a bond to guarantee there's going to be no more struggle and strife and problems. So the believers got together that very night and said, okay, if there's any hope of there not being struggle and strife and problems, Paul, you've got to go somewhere else. Because <laughs> everywhere you go, there's trouble. And so Paul had headed off down the road to Berea, and then he ended up leaving and going to Athens. And that's the struggle was going on. So Paul says, remember, I didn't want to leave, but we were torn away. We had to go. And he was saying, and ever since I was gone, I've been wanting to come back. I've been having this great desire. And so notice, I've got some words highlighted in red here. He has a strong desire. He says, we were torn away from you in person, but not in heart. My body had to move on to, to Berea but my heart was still with you. We've endeavored the more eagerly to try and get back. We're working hard to do it. Paul says we did it with great desire. We wanted to come to you. So multiple ways, Paul is saying, we really long to be with you. That's my deep desire. Now, of course, one might say, well then, Paul, why didn't you come back? What's preventing you? And Paul tells us, that I'm wanting to come, but Satan has hindered me. In verse 18, he specifically says, we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Now, it's kind of interesting because if you remember early on when we did our first uh, teaching on this, I mentioned that First and 2 Thessalonians, Paul uses we constantly in the writing. Uh, almost never does he go into the first person. Even though most people think Paul's the main author, He and Silas and Timothy are writing it together. But here, Paul is wanting to stress how strongly he wanted to come and what was creating problems that he breaks out of the we. And he says, look, we all wanted to come, but I'm telling you, I, Paul, wanted to, and the the Greek phrase is a little bit hard, but it means at least more than once, at least a couple of times, I was trying to get back to you. Again and again, I tried to make it, but I couldn't because Satan was hindering us. Now, what's intriguing is we don't know exactly what Paul means by that. What what is it that was happening that Paul ascertains as being Satan? It could be about that bond. Paul could be saying, look, if I come back, Jason's going to be broke because in all likelihood, a riot's going to break out. Um, It could be simply it would provoke more riots, and even if the bond wasn't an issue, that there were going to be more riots and trouble and strife in the city because we know Timothy had originally stayed with him, even when Paul and Silas left. And then Timothy was going back and there was no problem. So it seems to be Paul himself. And it's not hard if you read the book of Acts, everywhere Paul goes, what seems to happen? Riots break out. So Paul may be saying, I'm hindered because if I came back, they were looking for me. They had followed me all the way to Berea. And we know later on, even when Paul gets imprisoned and goes to Rome, they're kind of tracking and following him all along there. So Paul may be saying, Satan's hindering me by all of this opposition from those leaders. It may be a sickness. Now we know Paul's writing from Corinth, and in 2 Corinthians 12, 7, Paul refers to his thorn in the flesh, which he says is a messenger of Satan, and it appears to be that it's a physical sickness. And we also know that Paul told the Galatians the reason he first went to Galatia was because he had a physical sickness. A lot of scholars, they debate over it. It may be something related to malaria. It may be related to his eyes. But there may be something where Paul's saying, I wanted to come, but I was just physically sick and down and could not make it. We don't know for certain, but we we do know uh, this. Whatever was going on behind it all, whatever you and I might see with our eyes, Paul said, behind that, Satan was at work. I wanted to get there. I wanted to establish you in the faith. But Satan was at work preventing me from returning to the Thessalonians. Now, this sounds incredibly unmodern and unscientific, but it also sounds incredibly true and biblical. Paul makes no bones about it. He says Christians have to realize that Satan exists, and he works to oppose us and to oppose the work of God. And we have to realize, because some Christians look at that, some Christians hardly ever think of Satan. They don't recognize when problems are going on in their life. There is strife and struggle in relationships, or, or they're having issues that are cropping up. It never occurs to them that Satan might be involved. But there's another group of Christians that are aware of Satan's involvement, but they sometimes act as if, well, if we just say the right thing and do it, we can you know, talk to Satan like he's a dog, and we tell him to get behind us, and it's not an issue. Notice the apostle Paul says, hey, look, he is real. He is involved, and in fact, even I, the Apostle Paul, was thwarted in my desire to do the work of God by the work of Satan. And so we should not fall into either ditch, either ignoring that Satan is real or thinking that he is real, but it's of so little consequence that we're always going to be victorious. Fact is, you're not, and I am not. And Paul speaks multiple times of where Satan was preventing them from doing things that they wanted to be able to do. And so if Satan can thwart, at least for a time, we're going to see he did not win ultimately because Paul and them kept working and kept working until the work of God was accomplished. But if he can do that with the apostle Paul, here's a point for you to take away. You're not Paul, nor am I. And if he could do that with Paul, he can do it with you and me. And so our actions need to be like Paul's. We keep laboring, we keep working, we keep going until the Spirit breaks through and allows the work of God to be done. So Paul says, we wanted to come back, but Satan was at work doing this. Now, why not just give up? I mean, Paul's off, he's planted a church at Berea, he's now down in Athens, and he's getting ready to go to Corinth, and when he writes this, he's got a thriving work going in Corinth. Why is he still worried about the Thessalonians? Well, he tells us, He wants to be with them because they were his joy. In verse 19, he says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus in his coming? Is it not you? Now, don't just read past those words. What if you went home today and you had a letter from the Apostle Paul? And Paul said, you know, here's what I think. When Jesus comes back, you know what's going to be my glory You know what's going to be my joy? You know what's going to be my crown? This is my reward for God. It's you. You are my glory and my joy and my crown. Wow. I mean, that's a letter I would have framed and say, wow, this is something else. And that's what Paul says about the Thessalonians is these strong words. And especially in this section, it's why I'm calling it a holy joy. They were especially Paul's joy. He tells them this, three times. In verses uh, uh, 19 and 20, he says, for what's our hope or joy at the coming of Jesus? In verse 20, you are our glory and our joy. And then in chapter 3, verse 9, at the very end of this section, he says, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? Now, what's interesting is, Paul only uses the word joy four times in 1 and 2 Thessalonians combined. And you just saw three of them in one little section. Because Paul's wanting to communicate something to the Thessalonians. My not being with you is not from lack of desire, and it has not lessened the joy I feel in you. And it's also Paul letting them know that his joy is not from personal circumstances, because we know he's gone through trouble in Berea. He goes through trouble and struggle in Athens. He gets to Corinth, and there is all kinds of trouble and struggle, even as he's writing them. But none of that affects Paul's joy, because his joy is not rooted in personal circumstances, but rather from his fellow believers in the work that God is doing in them. Paul's saying, whatever's going on with you, as long as you're growing in the faith, I got joy. Whatever's going on in me, as long as you are growing in the faith, I have joy. This is what it means for Paul. And this is a consistent theme, not only for Paul, but in other writers. One of the ones that we see this most clearly is in the little letter of 3 John. And John is writing to a church that is going through some struggles. There have been some false teachers, and John's going to have to be coming, but John uses this little phrase to them in in verses 3 and 4 of that letter. He says, For I rejoiced greatly. That's just the verb form of joy. I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. John says, this is what it means for me. My joy is not rooted in Me and my circumstances, it's not rooted in how much money I have, or how well this is going, or that's going. My joy is that I hear my children are walking in the truth. If I've got that, I've got everything. Nothing else is of consequence. Fellow believers, walking in the truth is joy. And this should be the same for you and me. You don't have to be an apostle for that to be true. For the Christian, there should be no greater joy than seeing those we love walking with God. That should be our deepest desire and joy. I, uh, two, Lynn and I are, are keeping uh, three of our granddaughters uh, this weekend, and so I was taking Kalen up to bed the other night, and I said, so let's pray together, and she got on her knees beside her bed, and she did the Lord's Prayer. Uh, because Stephanie and them have taught to her. And she got a couple things wrong. Like she said, my kingdom come. But, <laughs> but she was, you know, she, she's working on it. I got to tell you, as a grandfather, there is no greater joy. And in fact, this morning she, she came into our bed and she said, Jesus was with me last night. There's nothing better. The, the faith being inculcated in another generation. There is nothing better. John tells us that, and Paul tells us that with the Thessalonians. Now, Paul, however, has not been able to be with them, and he's also aware of what is probably happening to them, and that produces a holy concern for Paul. There's something that is going on inside Paul, and he tells us what it's about. He's concerned about their growth in the faith. If that's where his joy comes from, he wants them to grow, and so he tells us in Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. He says, therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. So he's sending Timothy back, and he's saying, look, even though that meant I'm going to be left alone at Athens. Now, you may think that's not a big deal, but if you are Paul, once again, what happens everywhere you go? Riots break out. And very often, you end up in jail. And their jails are not like our jails. Are you guaranteed food? No. What are you dependent upon? Other people being there to help you. But if you are Paul and you are alone in a city where nobody knows you and you get locked up, because that seems to be what happens when you're Paul, this is a big issue. I'm, I, but I would rather be left alone. Whatever discomfort, difficulty, problem that creates, I wanted to make sure you all were okay. So I knew Timothy had stayed when I left and everything was okay and I can trust Timothy because Timothy is, he is our brother and he is God's coworker. I wish I even had time to go over that. What a, what a wild phrase for Paul to say about Timothy. He is God's coworker. I knew Timothy could get the job done. So I sent him back so you can be established and exhorted in the faith. Because my primary concern is that you grow in the faith, and I'm willing to sacrifice for it. If it means I'm alone, if it means there might even be danger for me, that's okay. It's more important that you are established in the faith. This is another thing for us to step aside for a second and ask, is that my primary concern? If I'm a spouse, is that my primary concern about my spouse? If I'm a parent, is that my primary concern about my children? as brothers and sisters here in the church, is our primary concern for other believers that they are established and grow in the faith. And it's so much a consuming desire, I'm willing to sacrifice whatever is necessary to see that it gets done. Because that's what Paul is telling us, and that's the example for us. Remember in the previous sections, Paul had been saying, You followed our example, and you were an example to others. All of this in that context, Paul's laying out here a thing that should be our desire and an example we should follow. That we are so consumed with the desire to see other believers grow in the faith because we know that's going to fuel our own joy that we are willing to sacrifice whatever it takes to see that done. Now, Paul's got a specific reason why he's concerned and why he thinks they need to be established in the faith, And that's because of the possible effects of persecution. In verses 3 and 5, he said, you know, I'm sending Timothy there to establish and exhort you in the faith, and that's because I know you're going to be afflicted. Now, Paul knows this because he had to leave Thessalonica because of the persecution that had already arisen. And then the people that were persecuting him in Thessalonica were so bent on stopping the, the growth of the gospel, they went down the road to the next city to follow Paul there. So Paul is certain these people are not going to just give up and let the church grow without a struggle and a fight. He knows from firsthand experience that's what's going on in Thessalonica. But he knows even more than that, that that's the lot of Christians always. That's what should be expected. In verses 3 and 4, he says, No one should be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know we, that we are destined for this. Again, This is not, you're not going to find this in your Jesus promise book. But it is a promise. Notice what Paul says. You want to know what we're destined for? We're destined to be in conflict with an unbelieving world. And Paul says, so I know it's going to be the case for you. In verse 4, for when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you now know. You all know what I was telling you was not just some empty phrases. I told you affliction was going to come because that is a lot of Christians in this age. If they persecuted our Lord, they will do it to you. I told you it came to pass, and now you know I was correct in saying this. And this is a consistent message in the New Testament. In the book of Acts, this is before Paul had ever even made it to Thessalonica in Acts 14:22. We read about Paul and Barnabas going back to the churches they had established and we read that they were strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. There's a doorway to the kingdom, and that doorway says tribulation, persecution, suffering, difficulty. That's what's on the doorway. But it's the doorway into the kingdom is what Paul and Barnabas told these other believers. And it's not just Paul. Peter says the same thing. The entire letter of 1 Peter is written to suffering Christians to encourage them in that. But in one particularly dense passage, in 1 Peter 4, 12 to 14, he says this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So notice Peter says, don't think this is unusual. What you should be struck as unusual is when you wake up and you're not suffering for the faith. You ought to say, wow, this is unusual. This was unexpected. But is that the way we are? See, we think it's unusual when the suffering comes, but, but Peter's telling them don't think it's that way. And then notice as well in verse 13, rejoice far as you share in Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Notice the note of joy, just like in this thing here in Thessalonians, and I could have shown it in Acts, it speaks of the joy of the Holy Spirit being there upon the disciples even as they are being persecuted. So, Christians should not be surprised when we're mocked or persecuted for the faith. It is part of the normal Christian life. The message you have is foolishness to an unbelieving world. It is a stumbling block to an unbelieving world. And therefore, they are going to mock, they are going to insult, they are going to demean, and then probably far worse than that. And we should not even be surprised. In fact, this past week, uh, Dick Dykeman was handing out to most folks this morning, if you didn't grab one, grab one from Dick, but the uh, persecution magazine from International Christian Concern. And if you did not hear, just a couple of days ago, a busload of Christians In Minya province in Egypt, which was where the 20 martyrs were from that we went to visit, Uh, when I went over there 15 or 16 months ago, in that same area they blew up and killed a busload of Christians uh, on the way to visit a holy shrine on a holiday. That's what they were going to do, and they did it. It is consistent and constant. We forget that because we're over here, and we act as if it's strange when someone makes fun of us because they think what we're saying is stupid. Praise be to God. If that's all we get, we're, doing, we're being blessed. We're being blessed. But if nobody's mocking, if nobody thinks we sound crazy, we are probably not speaking the truth, because it sounds crazy to this world. And so Paul said, I knew this was going to happen, and you were brand new believers, and there was nobody there. Nobody there to, to help you. So I was concerned about this. And that's what he goes on to in verse 5. He said, because I'm concerned, I know persecution is going to come. And I'm, he's back to Satan. He says, I'm concerned that Satan was going to use that to stunt your growth in the faith, to try and remove the seed of the gospel from you. So what, what I couldn't bear it any longer. I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Persecution's going to come, Paul says, but Satan is always at work to try and use those things to turn us from God and his kingdom. And Paul's saying, I love you and I find joy in your faith and growth. That means this was a concern for me. This is where Paul speaks in 2 Corinthians and he writes, he says, Look, this is what it is like to be an apostle. We're, we're we're paraded around. People think we're crazy. We are the scum and the refuse of the earth. I, I, sometimes I fast just because there's no food. I'm in prison again and nobody brought me a meal, so today's a day of fasting. And even when things are at their best, I, I'm awake half the time at night because I'm worried about the churches. I'm carrying a burden for them. And this is exactly what Paul is saying here. I was worried about you Thessalonians. And so this is why there's a, a thing that, again, we realize suffering's going to come, but when you and I hear about Christians in Egypt and they are suffering like that, we shouldn't just say, oh, well, it's going to come. No, my, my heart goes out. I don't want to see the enemy come in and destroy that community. And so we, we cry out for them and we long for them and we are concerned for them. It should grieve us to see friends suffer and we should worry about its effects on them. That's the way... If, if you're a parent, you know what this is like. Parents are never like, hey, I just need to put, you know, I hope some really bad things happen to my kid. That'll help him grow up. It'll toughen them up. I mean, if a parent says that, you look at them like, something's wrong with you. <laughs> I mean, something twisted you at some point in the past. We do realize our kids do have to go through tough times, but We want as much as we can to shield them from it. We want as much as we can to be there and to help them and to protect them. We worry about the effect that it is going to have on them. And Paul says, it's the same way with my spiritual children. I know it was going to come, but I wasn't there to be with you, and so I was really worried. But then we get to the good part, which is why Paul's got this joy, still at the end of all this, and that's because He says, hey, Timothy just came back and he had a good report. And he says, Timothy just came back to us and he's brought us good news. He's brought us gospel back, which is that your faith has survived and in fact it's strengthened and it's growing. And he tells us that you always remember us kindly and long to see us. Now see, think about why Paul's saying that. What might the Thessalonians think about Paul? You know, life was pretty good Till you showed up. And ever since you showed up, it's been trouble for us. So even though I'm glad to be a believer, Paul just stayed far, far away. But that's not what happened with the Thessalonians. They were like, oh no, we remember Paul. You go back and you tell him, we are so grateful God sent him here. We were lost. And now we've been found. We were, we were estranged and cut off from God. And now we are God's holy people. We were dead and now we are alive and we are so grateful Paul came. You mean, even though you're suffering persecution, that doesn't matter. We are now the people of God. And so we are so grateful. Timothy, make sure you let Paul know what's going on with us. And this shows us, even though Paul's concern is there, the proper response to persecution and suffering, what it actually causes is faith and love to grow, not to be destroyed. And we see this over and over and over again in the scripture, that the principle was all the way back, for example, in Egypt, that the more Pharaoh tried to crush the Israelites, what happened? The more they grew, the stronger they became. The more, uh, Tertullian spoke this a couple of centuries later and said, look, the blood of martyrs is actually seed for the church. The more you kill us, the more seed you're spreading, which is somewhat kind of productive to you stopping the faith from growing because you're just spreading seed everywhere. That is all you are doing. And Pliny the Younger, you can read in 112 uh, over in the province of Asia, actually wrote and said, look, we've been trying this torture and persecution thing, but it's not working, so I wanted to know what you want us to do. And they basically started pulling back because he said it's it's not having the effect we thought. In fact, when people watch how these Christians die, it's encouraging other people to become Christians. And so Paul here is reporting, that's exactly what happened with you Thessalonians. I was concerned, but you responded rightly, and so your faith has actually grown. And what that produces for Paul is this unspeakable joy at their growth in the faith. In verse 7, he says, in our distress and affliction, we were comforted. Uh, about you through your faith. I was worried, I was struggling, I was alone. But when Timothy came and told me you were okay and your faith was okay, he even goes as far in verse eight and says, for now we live. Paul was like, "I I felt like I was under the curse of death. I felt like it was all over. I was worried about you all. But now that I know you are okay, oh man, I am alive again now that I know that your faith is alive and good and at least that's where he says because that you are our joy he brings it back up and what he says in verse 10 is and that causes us to turn around and give thanksgiving back to god we're we're back to another one of these cycles that I've been praying for you, and when I see the effects and I see God's work in you and you are alive and your faith is doing well, that just makes me cry out to God more. It makes me give thanks to God. It makes me pray to God more for you, and it even renews my desire. I want to be there more so I can help you grow in the faith. And so for us as believers, seeing others established and persevering in the faith should make us overflow with joy, with thanksgiving, and with praise. Now, let's bring this forward to us because we're not Paul. We're not apostles out there living that day. How does this word apply to us as believers today? There's one central question I want us to mull over today. And that is is my joy centered on the kingdom or is it centered on this age, this passing age? Paul's joy is centered on the kingdom. It's not centered on this age. He's got joy even under persecution and even when those he loves are suffering persecution. Now I mentioned earlier there's only four times that joy appears in all of 1 and 2 Thessalonians and three times in this little passage here. When I looked it up the other day, here's the really amazing thing. This is the highest concentration of Paul using the word joy in all of his writings right here in the passage we just looked at. And the second highest concentration is the entire book of Philippians, where Paul was in a Roman prison. And that's the one that we oftentimes call the epistle of joy. And so what we learn from both 1 Thessalonians and Philippians is Paul's joy is not based on his circumstances. His circumstances come and go, they go up and down, very often they're down, but Paul's joy is at its highest when he is seeing Christians who are growing in the faith, because it is not built on the circumstances. And so for a Christian, joy is not to be centered on our circumstances in this age, but on God's work in us and in those we love. So let's take the question and turn it around a little bit. Is my joy founded upon and centered in God, his kingdom, and his work? Or is it in the things of this passing age, which is pretty much everything other than what I just said, God, his kingdom, and his work? Do changing circumstances destroy my joy, or does it hold firm? Okay, I. Uh, it's a little different with Thanksgiving, but I remember, I think I've even mentioned this before, I remember one Thanksgiving, yep, my wife's already, she knows where I'm going to go with this. Uh, we, were, we were watching Cowboys football because that's a good thing to do. And the Cowboys were playing the Dolphins, and it was the end of the game, and there was snow all over the field, and the Dolphins were trying to kick a short field goal, which would give them the victory but in all the snow they went out and the field goal was blocked by the Cowboys and that was gonna be the end of the game. And so my boys and I were jumping around and we were dancing and we were hollering something like we're having dolphin for Thanksgiving. You know, we were, we were doing our little victory dance. And then all of a sudden I heard the announcer say, uh-oh, wait a minute, Leon Lett touched the ball. He was a Cowboy football player and it went out the back of the end zone. And suddenly, my little joy victory dance. Kind of was like, what? And then they described this obscure rule that meant, even though there was no time left, the Dolphins were going to get another attempt to kick the field goal. At which point, they kicked the field goal and the Dolphins won the game. And I was very godly in my reaction, but my wife... <laughs> my wife's joy just evaporated at that moment. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, her joy did evaporate, as she watched my reaction. I got incredibly upset, and she looked at me and said, you are not going to let this ruin our thanksgiving. And I, speaking by the Spirit of the Lord, said, I'm not ruining our thanksgiving. Leon, let ruined our thanksgiving. And, uh, and then I repented after a little while, and I bring that story up because you know what? Leon Lett can't ruin my Thanksgiving. Leon Lett can't take my joy away. And nor can anybody who's persecuting me, nor can my next door neighbor who's irritating, nor can any family member or coworker, nobody can take your joy away. Even my coworkers can't take my joy away, right, Jared? It's easy for me. I just work with believers, you know. So None of that. But how often are you and I tempted to be angry and upset and to be anything other than joyful, and the reason is because? No. That thing has nothing to do with why you're behaving this way. Leon Lett's behavior, had his his foul-up on that play, had nothing to do with my ungodly response. I had to do with my ungodly response because I had put my hope and my joy in something else. And so is my uh, joy, does does it flop by changing circumstances? Seriously, think about that question because to the extent that it does, what that tells you is my joy is not anchored in God and his kingdom and his word because those things don't change it's anchored in something else of this passing age. How about if we think about the question this way, are my life goals and thoughts centered around growing in the faith? Or things like money, reputation, career, hobbies, my favorite sports team? What, what are my goals centered around? What What makes me excited to get up in the morning? What is it that I think about when I've just got spare time for brain cycles to go? What is it that really is my joy and and that is driving and pushing me forward? Because see, where the the heart is or where the treasure is, there your heart's going to be also. What I am most excited about, what is driving me, that reveals where my heart really, really is. And then if that thing is removed, suddenly my joy goes with it. Where are my goals? What really drives me? Another way, same question, we're just turning it, looking at it from a different angles. What's my greatest in desire and joy for my spouse? What do I really want out of my spouse? or my kids? My family? My friends. Am am I more concerned about their happiness or their holiness? I want to tell you, this is is huge. I, I had a friend who's a pastor out west, and he said that their youth leader had told him, if I have another parent tell me I just want my kid to be happy, I'm going to scream. Because if that's your goal, It will drive your behavior a certain way. And friend, on the final day, when I stand at the throne of God on Judgment Day, the last thing I want is to see my children banished from the kingdom of God and say, but they were happy. Or my friends, name the person. What's my real desire and goal? Because see, if my desire and goal, what I'm really after is their holiness, that's going to change my conduct towards them, that's going to change my goals, and it's going to change what my joy is centered in. There is nothing like seeing that, that being embraced by a child, a spouse, a family member. Now, what this goes back to is you remember very first question in our catechism. Why did God make us? Why are we here? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. You and I were made to know and glorify and enjoy God forever. So see, when I go to these other things, it's not that those other things are all bad. They may be very good things. They're not the central reason I was made. And you and I only experience real joy when we're saying, This is why I was made. And you were made to know God. You were made to love God. You were made to enjoy God. And when we're doing that, we're like Paul, we're saying, I may be sitting in a jail. My life may be on the line. The people I care for may be even suffering persecution, but you know what? I'm knowing and loving and enjoying God. They're knowing and loving and enjoying God. We're bringing glory to God, so all is okay. C.S. Lewis put it this way, and uh, this is from uh, his sermon "Weight of Glory," and he said, "It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition." When infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday or a vacation at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. See, and whenever my joy starts shifting, you can know that that thing that's controlling my joy, you can write on it, mud pie in the slum. Because that's what it is. And Jesus is saying, it's not that you're wanting something too much. You don't want enough. You don't really understand what's going to bring you actual real joy. I'm offering you infinite, eternal, unshakable joy. But you just want to keep playing and making mud pies. It's not very wise, is it? So what I want to encourage us this week, and what we're going to pray for, is to stir up your joy. And your joy is not based on, well, my kids were better this week than last week. Your joy is not based on the jerk at work, he's on vacation for a week, so I'm going to have a joy-filled week. It doesn't matter. I'm saying that Jer was just gone last week. I had a really good week <laughs> last week. No, no you're, you're part of my joy, brother. I'm glad having you around. It's not based on what my neighbor does or whether the weather is good or any of that. My joy is God has loved me with an everlasting love. He he has given his son for me. He has poured his Holy Spirit out into me. Each morning, I can wake up and open and hear the very word of God. And he speaks to me and he walks with me. And none of that can be taken away. And so this week, be on a mission, and every morning, wake up and say, I'm going to stir my joy up. And here's how I stir it up. I'm going to let God speak to me by his word. I'm going to talk to the everlasting, eternal God who rules the whole universe, and he's going to listen to me. He listens to what I say. And if somebody I love and care for is not walking in the ways of the kingdom, I'm going to give that over to God and I'm going to ask him to work in the midst of that. Friends, if you do that, your joy is going to be stirred up. And so is mine. And no one can take that away. So let's stand together and we will close with a prayer for true, holy joy. Father, there are so many things that we are grateful for about you. Lord, you are not us. We shift and we change and we're affected by things. Father, you do not. You are the unchanging, eternal God, and you are the source, the fountain of all true joy. Lord, you are an ocean of joy. And yet, so often, Father, we turn our eyes from that, Father. So often, my joy is conditioned upon this or that or the other thing that I'll forget about tomorrow. Father, I pray for us this week that we would be like Paul, who would say, now, here's where my joy is. My joy at the coming of Jesus is going to be in him in his kingdom and his work not the passing things of this age. Father, Paul spent much of his life virtually penniless. But he was filled with joy. Because he knew you. And he had your joy because he was centered on your kingdom. Lord, I pray for us. I pray that tomorrow, as we wake up, we would open your word and stir up our joy. I pray we would take time to talk to you and we would stir up our joy. And Father, I pray that as we go through the day when the enemy would come in and something would want to affect that and we are tempted to think that because this is going on, because of what that person said, I'm now upset or I'm angry or I've lost my joy. Father, I pray your Holy Spirit would speak to us and say that's not true. I pray your Holy Spirit would speak to us and draw us up short and say... You're losing your joy because you're settling for mud pies in the slum. Lift up your eyes. There's an ocean of joy that awaits you. Father, I pray by your powerful Holy Spirit, you would make us to be people of joy, that nothing this world could do would shake or change that, that, Father, we would embrace you and your ways and your kingdom, and, Father, I pray our deepest desire by your Holy Spirit, would be to glorify you. To glorify you. And that as we do so, we would enjoy you forever. Grant us that because of the work of Jesus Christ. I pray in his name, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Savior be glory and majesty and power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Go in the peace and joy of your Lord. Amen. See everyone later this week.